Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Never Stay Dead, where we come back to life and try to go in depth on some comics. I am Damien, and I'm here with my good buddy, Matt. Hi, Matt. Hi. So uh, today we're embarking on a experiment or a new way to do this podcast a little bit. We're going to try to dig deep into Planetary, over the, the uh, graphic novel Planetary, over a series of episodes. We're not sure how many yet. This episode, we're just going to look at issue one of Planetary. It came out in what year? Like 1999? Thereabouts? Sure. And there were 27 <laughs> issues in the main series. So hopefully we won't do 27 episodes, but we're going to, we're going to feel our way along. We're just going to do the first issue this time and see how many issues we oh, want to wow. cover per episode afterwards. Earliest copyright I'm seeing is 98. 98. Okay. And I think, but, that, I think the series didn't wrap up till 2007 or so. There were lots oh, of, I think it was later than that or 2008 or 2009. I think is much I, like there's a huge delay between a majority of the series and the last chapter. Right. But normally 27 issues, if it came out monthly would just be two years and some change, but it must've been at least eight or nine years. This is one of those long waits where people gave up and then they finally came back and finished it. My copyright page says 98 to 99, 2000 to 2006 and 2009 so i'm not right. sure if that means it wrapped up in 2006 or in 2009 um, but either way what should have been a, a two to three year uh spread of time became nine years nine right. ten years or possibly 11 <laughs> mm -hmm. but we don't have to worry about that because we have everything in front of us now and the first issue of planetary is called All Over the World. And it starts with kind of a gathering of the team where um, one of the characters, Jakita Wagner, she shows mm -hmm. up at a diner. She meets up with this guy named Elijah Snow and she convinces him to join this organization called Planetary and uh, offers him a million dollars a year. And... They go off, I guess, to New York City, to their headquarters. They hang out there a little bit. And then they go off on the first mission with Elijah Snow. Planetary, some kind of secretive organization. We don't know for sure what they do as things start. Although on the cover of the comic book, it says archaeologists of the impossible. And they, they have some intel about a secret cavern in a mountainside in the Adirondacks. Uh, they they go and explore the cavern and they find a kind of unusual story of something of a secret history that happened in around 1945 involving multiverses and pulp heroes of the past and some kind of substitute version of the Justice League. So they kind of just learn that story, collect the survivor from the story, and that's the end of the issue. So that's my very um, slightly obscured uh, pricey of, of this issue. And now we thought we would just go scene by scene or page by page and discuss with us what we thought. There's a total of 24 pages here. 
I, I would just note, you know, uh, Warren Ellis writing John oh, Cassidy early in his career um, doing it says artist. So I'm not sure if he's doing pencils or pencils and inks here. And I then think he must be doing pencils and inks or they would have mentioned an inker. And I think he's generally been someone who does his own inking. And uh, Laura Depuy, who Depuy? later becomes Laura Martin. Oh, my trade note notes uh, David Barron as Wildstorm FX. So I'm guessing this comic was taking advantage of some digital affectations that weren't commonplace at the time. Uh-huh. Alex Fuquez and Bill O'Neill letters. I assume that was done digitally at this point. <laughs> and then Ed Roeder cover logo and book design i've never seen anyone credited with a logo before though it seems important well every issue of planetary has a different logo yeah even still though you think that would just be considered cover design right normally sure. but maybe they hired i mean there are people who are experts in doing logos in the mm -hmm. in the commercial art world so perhaps they hired someone just for that yeah, just interesting to have that credit, which was a big note in there. Um, Ellis really wanted every cover to pop and stand out on the shelves. So that was yeah. a big to do. And then this one got me. John Lehman, editor. Yes, I noticed. Of Chew fame. So. Right. Well, I knew he came out of editing and became a writer. So I just didn't know what he had edited. Right. So let's talk about planetary archaeologists of the impossible so i mean our our first scene is in a diner mm -hmm. a diner that appears to be in the desert with no other buildings anywhere nearby <laughs> yeah and a road that's kind of covered over in sand yeah you know i i've driven through a fair amount of the midwest i've never just seen a diner standalone right like that well they also have the script for the first issue, and he says this diner's in the Midwest, but it looks like some really deserty part of uh, Arizona or New Mexico at the most. <laughs> looks it's more a like very abstract West. diner, I think. I'm yeah. sorry, what'd you say? I said it's a little more like the Wild West. <laughs> and so uh, this guy dressed all in white is the only person in the diner except for the waitress. And he says this coffee tastes like your dog took a leak in it and uh the the waitress gives as good as he gives back as good as she gets and she says the dog's got to go someplace and she tells him you know the air conditioning always goes crazy when you're in here so if you'd like to leave that's fine with me <laughs> and i think that's supposed to tell us something about the personality of elijah snow who may be our main character judging from the first issue and then this woman dressed all in leather and a skin tight outfit comes in and it's interesting because she says is it cold in here then i don't really feel the weather and it, it mm -hmm. probably only in rereads did i notice that <laughs> so that's both telling us there is something weird about about temperature around elijah snow and this character jacinta doesn't really feel things it's supposed to be saying Chiquitas, that i'm sorry but given that we're in this weird diner, we're two pages in, it just uh, none of this quite registers because we don't really have a baseline for anything yet. Right. I Because I've now read this issue two times just now, and I've read it a couple times in the past. 
mm-hmm. uh, noticing these things more. I, I think I just sort of read these things without them registering when, when the first time around. Honestly, wouldn't fault you if this is your first time reading, if these things don't quite connect. I, I don't think there's any reason that they would. I, I don't necessarily think it's poor writing either, because if you come around and read it again, it's going to have right. more meaning. To me, that's one of the pleasures of the reason I like <clears throat> One of the reasons I like planetary is these little simple details are part of the layers that he's building up. I think of planetary as, as, as a ultimate stories within stories within stories kind of story, which I can enjoy when it's done well. The thing that did stand out to me every time I read it is she walks up and introduces herself and says, we spoke on the phone. And then he says, explain to me why I shouldn't kill you right now. And I don't know why he would say that. I still don't know why he would say that. Because he's a clandestine kind of guy. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we spoke on the phone. I said you can find me at the diner. Oh, you showed up. Why shouldn't I kill you? (laughs) Unless there's something else she said to him or... Some right. reason why he kills people? Well, what we know... I don't know if we know it by this frame or in short order. Because mm-hmm. my memory isn't that tight. But he's in or around 100 years old. Right. He, we learned that in the in the scene somewhere. Yeah. Right. Um, he's... He was born on the first day of the century. And he's... He has this cold thing going on. He doesn't like other people at this point. You get the sense something made him jaded and detached. Right. So there's something there that I think you could connect the general feeling for. Like this is a kind of clandestine, I don't know, James Bond, Mission Impossible kind of feeling, right? Like players are on the field, they interact with violence or threats. I almost have the vibe of he's like a supervillain in hiding. That's okay. Yeah. And, and cause there That's is better. not, I mean, I'm thinking of this as we're looking at it. He does talk about, or she says you've done a fair job of covering up your existence. So he's in hiding. He doesn't. So that may be why he's saying, why shouldn't I kill you? Because he's trying, she knows who he is and no one's supposed to know who he is or where he is. And she says, you're a hundred years old. You've haunted the 20th century, Mr. Snow. And uh, you haven't done much other than sit in your desert shack and eat here for the last decade. So they are in it. We are in a desert, even though they called it the Midwest. He makes a sarcastic comment about the diner. And then the next thing she does is just offer him a job that pays a million dollars a year for the rest of your life, no matter how long you work for us. Which hit me as funny, because if he's effectively immortal, eventually a million dollars, how much is is, is that going to be good? Is he tempted by money? Um, or does he already have a lot of money? And then they, she says they can cover up the rest of his uh, tracks. You know, he's done a pretty good job of covering up his existence, but they can wipe out all the rest of the records of him. Mm-hmm. And I guess he believes them because he, uh, he agrees to the deal and goes off with her into a helicopter and they fly away. That has the planetary logo on it. You're right. That has the planetary logo, the same logo that is on the front cover. And then after he gets into the helicopter, we jump ahead two days. He's been in New York City two days. And during that time, he's gotten a haircut and some new clothes. And in fact, uh, 
Chiquita comes in, in knocks on his door and says, um, I see that, I see that you're the tailor you ordered has been and gone. Very nice. Two days well spent. Welcome to the New York office of planetary. So all of this is very comic booky in a sense that there isn't a lot of attempt at making, convincing us why all of this just happens quickly so that he's now a member of planetary. Right. Getting the band together. I did sort of, <clears throat> all of this dialogue to me is vaguely uh, British sounding. Okay. You know, like, uh, I see the tailor you ordered has been and gone. Very nice. Two days well spent. I just don't, I mean, it's not impossible that an American would speak that way, but I don't know, been and gone, well spent. It's just a little. I feel maybe... hers is a bit more that way. European maybe even um right. elijah snow's a lot more um curt and generally is speaking less though once he's on the other side of this he seems to speak more yeah. and we'll see his character develop i feel like this is a weird moment i just generally across warren ellis comics um i generally like the first issue but i rarely feel it's the height of where he's going mm -hmm. right this is all all set up for bigger plans, I guess. But we're only, what, five pages in? Like, the idea yeah. that we're setting up a series right. and he's it's gotten us into fast. it quickly. Yeah. And he's given us enough little fun hints to make you go, oh, I wonder what this is all going to be about. Like this mm -hmm. secret organization, and it can afford to pay a million dollars. And right. so then he... By I guess the sixth page is asking, you know, who's paying for all this? And she tells him, well, there's a fourth man because there's three, three players, three main people in planetary. And then there's an unknown, invisible fourth man who pays all the bills. And he must be richer than God. Whatever we ask him for, he just gives us the money to do it. Mm -hmm. They haven't even really explained what their goal is or anything. <laughs> right. And she does say to illustrate, she doesn't know who the fourth man is. Could be Bill Gates, could be Hitler. I don't know. Right. Right. Which there's a bit of a range. Yes. <laughs> and and then he says, Well, who's the third man? And and she says he's waiting downstairs for us. And it turns out to be this guy who has the silliest name in the in the story, the drummer. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Elijah Snow comments on that. He says, Well, what's your real name? And he says, first name, the second name, drummer. <laughs> and the drummer has the, the super technology power. He can take those 1990s computers and make them do anything by tapping his drumsticks. and Magically, I don't know, whatever you can do magically with, in the minds of people in the 90s. He's read the entire Windows 98 manual, a feat yes. no one else has accomplished. <laughs> Right, which brings us back to Bill Gates, right? So maybe yeah, this is all Bill Gates. <laughs> and then uh, as they're explaining that they need to go to the Adirondacks, he throws a bottle at uh, Elijah Snow and Elijah catches it behind his head without looking, which implies Elijah has some other superpowers other than just making the room a little cold. Mm -hmm. That felt very Wolverine to me. I don't know. Yeah, I suppose. It does seem like Wolverine would be able to do that too. 
I mean, just the reaction and yeah. cool guy in the room. I don't know, but it, it is a noticeable moment. And it's weird how that's a very big action point thus far, because mm-hmm. you realize we've just been talking and now a thrown bottle is the height of our height, height of action so far. Right. Well, what's interesting to me is so e- even though they're not very superhero-ish, each person has their own look, right? Elijah yeah. Snow has this tailored almost well not quite a zoot suit but it's a beyond a normal suit and it's all mm-hmm. white and his hair's all white and he has kind of a paler complexion than the other people mm-hmm. so he's almost ghostly and then jacintha is all in these black leathers or bluish black grayish leather outfit with a little bit of red highlights and then the drummer has this purple green and orange outfit which gives off i don't know a little bit of a uh i mean those are all the villain colors villain colors right that's what i was trying to go for those are the typical villain colors but but it's just a regular jacket and uh a t-shirt and orange jeans though i say villain colors really they're secondary colors and he is very much right. kind of the the secondary the other character, character. Of the three it, that's the other thing that i find weird is three it feels like four is a more natural balance but right. we landed on three and there's there, usually there aren't many comic book teams with just three people it's usually four or more yeah or a duo i don't know or a duo but then usually it's some guy and his sidekick or something like that right and so then they we go into some explanation of this uh somebody wanted to to drive to you know build a highway through a through a mountain and they found this uh, hidden chamber with a hologram in front of it to keep it hidden. They start talking about Dr. Brass or Doc Brass about books they stole from the KGB a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this uh, person that no one's ever heard of, but the KGB has, has this diary about that someone wrote about him. And he was born on January 1st also of two, of 1900 and there's all these adventures listed and and we're, we're we're eventually told that that he he no longer has that this dr brass doc brass person got to the point where he doesn't have to eat or sleep and and in the same scene we're introduced to the idea that uh jakita could kick a uh what is something she could she could kick a rhino over the grand canyon Right. So she's very strong. And then in the very next scene, she jumps out of the helicopter. And when she lands, she leaves little craters with her feet or little spider cracks in the rock, at least with her feet. Right. And, and the, uh, the drummer doesn't come along. Like you said, he doesn't always go into the forefront of the adventure part. He's more the backup guy. So uh, Jakita and Elijah go through the hologram into the cave and they find kind of a trophy room. And I assume there's a lot of illusions here, but they went right over my head. Well, you know how uh, Superman has a trophy room in the Silver Age. And I think Mm -hmm. in some iterations on the um, with the Justice League, they'll have a trophy room in -hmm. some versions I've read or in cartoons and stuff. Batman has one. Well, yeah, he has trophies all over his Batcave, right? Right. 
Um, but this is like a special trophy room. They read the hull of the Carnell ship, the vestments of the Black Crow King, the murder colonels. So it's a trophy room, and maybe these are references to actual adventures from pulp heroes. Because on the very next page, we they run into Doc Brass, mm -hmm. who's laying there with his legs all twisted up and giant guns in his hands. And it's immediately obvious to anyone who has encountered Doc Savage before that this is, Doc Brass is a take on Doc Savage, one mm -hmm. of the most famous pre-comics pulp characters ever. Arguably the first superhero. Arguably. Um, yeah, I, I imagine there's tons of arguably the first superhero. He's certainly a huge inspiration on comic book superheroes because he he had a lot of attributes that were copied by superman and by batman why by i think that's important here is this is our first issue of planetary which is supposed to be the archaeologists into the weird but also by the notes that we look through supposed to very much be a superhero book so by starting with who is arguably the first superhero i think we we're having a case for where ellis is tracing the lineage to yeah you know i didn't before I read his notes in that proposal, I never thought of this as a superhero book. Neither did I. So I don't know if he is right. <laughs> if Ellis is right that it really is a superhero book. I take, well, from my, I, I just don't remember, because I never finished the series originally, and I just don't remember everything that I did read. But mm -hmm. I took it as a, uh, almost a pulp, a pulp culture book. Yeah, of all the different pop pulp culture kind of things, including superheroes. But maybe it's really a superhero book. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there to me, I mean, I don't. I, I've read some Doc Savage, and I've read other pulp material that isn't part of these series. That pulp is an influence on a lot of things, not just superheroes. And and Doc True. Savage is kind of a superhero but he's also kind of a james bond type of thing and you know there's just all kinds of different ways you could look at him right but he he, he was supposed to have from childhood been uh raised scientifically to be the perfect man and that's why apparently in this version of him i don't know if he did in the pulps not in the ones i've read uh perfect himself so much that he didn't have to eat or sleep or sleep and apparently doesn't have to age by the at this point. Um, and it's interesting that he's called Doc Brass because Doc Savage was also called the Man of Bronze. Mm -hmm. I never quite figured out why. I guess he had bronze-colored skin for some reason, that that was part of his perfection. Because he's perfectly tan. And over him is this strange crystalline shape. Yeah. And again, in kind of comic booky way, he says, you guys better be the good guys. And I guess he decides they are because he he has no problem telling them all his secrets. So <laughs> yeah, he just jumps we, into it. Where we get our, our first sort of uh, full-on story within a story, right? Um, mm -hmm. He tells them the whole, uh, he tells them a whole story of um, this secret group of heroes who are all pulp hero you know all based on real pulp heroes could you point through them because sure. i don't know i could i i i actually need help from his script from so okay 
um, the this Oriental guy with the long fingernails is mm. based on Fu Manchu. Oh, okay. Although he doesn't look the way Fu Manchu is normally portrayed. Well, and it was then, the 90s, um, so some of that had to go. Yeah. And then the guy next to him... The spirit? No, the guy next to him who looks kind of like the spirit is, I believe, called Operator 5. He was a real pulp character. But so in the script, Ellis kind of tips his hand to who the real character is, but then also um, gives them a different name. So he's calling him the agent. But Operator 5 was a a secret agent in in who had a series in pulps. Okay. And uh, in the script, in the script, he describes him as a thin scar over one eye, like Fleming's bond, American suit and tie blue, like the spirits shoulder holster under jacket, perhaps shades sticking out of breast pocket. So uh, not all of these details <laughs> were put in by John Cassidy. Uh, right. In this. It's a lot of work being a comic book artist. You can't always put in everything you ask. And then next to him is someone who was called G8, who was a a adventure pilot character in the Pulps. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of Doc Brass there with the um, goggles and stuff is Thomas Edison. So he's not actually a Pulp character that I know of. Oh. The inventor, Thomas Edison. (laughs) He looks like a different Pulp character. So that's... Or maybe he's based on the pulp character. Um, Who am I thinking of? But in the script, he calls him the inventor, Dash Edison. All right. So maybe there was an inventor, inventor pulp hero too. Um, And then there is, next to him is someone who they call, uh, what do they call him? Lord, Lord Blackstock. But Lord Greystoke is the title that Tarzan inherited. Oh. Because his family oh. were nobility in England, the Greystokes. So eventually in the adventures of Tarzan in uh, the, the the novels by Edgar Rice Burroughs, he discovers that he's the heir to the Greystoke fortune and the Greystoke estate over in England. So he's he both has his jungle kingdom and his estate in England. That explains the print. On the yes. shirt. It, and uh, he says, you came all the way from England for this, your lordship? And he says, Africa, actually, visiting childhood haunts. Oh, oh and then this other character next to him. The spider. The spider. But he is, according to the script by Ellis, he's a cross between the shadow and the spider, both of whom were at one time Similar. popular pulp characters. But obviously the shadow is more well known. And and it's well known that the that bat, a lot of Batman's uh, aspects were taken from the shadow, but maybe from the spider too. Oh, definitely the spider as well. Yeah, and he is portrayed as being very disturbing looking. <laughs> and then then they go on Edison and um, Doc Brass. I keep wanting to call him Doc Savage. Go on to explain this computer of theirs. Um, and apparently they've already invented the regular binary computer, which I think may, yeah, it was just being invented around the time of World War II in real life in terms of a usable computer. 
right being sort of theoretical computers before then for maybe a hundred years before so the fates of the computer and the atomic bomb are eternally linked strangely yes. this projector of theirs to me looks like the green lantern's lantern <laughs> i mean yeah it has that look to it i don't know if uh was if the original green lantern got a take on a pulp thing I don't remember because I know the original Green Lantern was more Oriental mystic brought to the West right. idea. There was a so. character called the Green Llama who was in comics, but I don't know if he was also in pulps. All right. Because some characters. Right. I almost feel like the Green Llama might have been from pulps. Some transferred to comics, some transferred to radio, and then others were. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure, but I think the shadow may have started in radio and then moved to pulps. But anyway, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, there's a lot of pulp history to know, and I just know little snippets of it, which is probably uh, causes more harm than good. <laughs> so they describe how everybody already has these binary computers that they've been using, but now they've invented a quantum computer. Now, in right. real life, quantum computers were only put into use in the past two or three years. Mm -hmm. So when Warren Ellis was writing about this, quantum computers were still theoretical. And he's imagining these people in 1945 created one. But this is a different right. quantum computer that, than, than what uh, IBM and, and Microsoft and a few other people have come up with lately. Let me go to the next page. Because it... Um, it works through um, 196,833 dimensions. And as it works to solve problems, it creates, um, it creates multiple Earths and then destroys them in the process of solving problem, solving whatever problem it's been given, if it's I understand the description correctly. It's also referred to as the snowflake. Right. Which is playing back to our main yeah. character. That's true, right? Elijah Snow and the Snowflake, and it is—I um, believe it's featured on the cover in the background. Mm -hmm. On the cover, there's uh, there, the planet Earth is part of the logo, and then behind the logo and the planet Earth. So behind the planet Earth, in a sense, is this giant um, in the logo is this giant snowflake. Right. So this is a, a horrifying vision of a horrifying vision of computing because it, it it's literally creating and destroying worlds. <laughs> um, I don't really understand why that's necessary, but Warren Ellis clearly reads a lot of science reporting and cutting edge stuff, and then extrapolates from that into kind of, and he probably reads a lot of you know hard hardcore science fiction too. I imagine, and he. Mm -hmm. uh, he loves throwing out these kinds of ideas. And I kind of, that's part of what I love about Warren Ellis, actually, is the wacky kind of hard science fiction ideas he's got. It's a very, to make it equatable to something, I guess, it's very much in the vein of Star Trek as to how hard and soft it goes with the sci-fi. Like, he'll take any idea for a story, but when it comes to these concepts, he wants to root it in something at least theoretically possible which I feel like gives it an extra grounding and makes it more, I don't know. Right. I mean, I feel like he's taken in a kind of artistic interpretation of 
of uh, quantum physics and its possibilities yes. um, and really thought about it. And I don't even know if they do that on Star Trek, but possibly. Depends on the episode, roughly. <laughs> Uh, he said, I, I want to read this, if you don't mind. This is the shape of reality, a theoretical snowflake existing in one, 196,833 dimensional space. The snowflake rotates. Each element of the snowflake rotates. Each rotation describes an entirely new universe. The total number of rotations are equal to the number of atoms making up the Earth which has got to be in the quadrillions. I mean, I think there are trillions of atoms in a human body. So I have no idea. It's huge. Mm -hmm. Each rotation makes a new earth. This is the multiverse. Now, one thing I got to say is I'm at this point in my comic book reading, I am so sick of the term multiverse, but I don't think that jumped out at me as an annoying cliche in when I read this probably in, in 2000 or so, whenever the first trade came out. Well, and here we're interpreting the multiverse not as a um, clever way to navigate continuity. This is the first issue. This is getting to the multiverse, which if you understand the basis of how you get to the multiverse is that we are in a unit we are in you know a galaxy that is within a universe to talk about the multiverse is to talk about the scope of existence and so this is talking about the scope of everything and right. it's evoking that which i think is a little more interesting than here's 10 versions of batman right you know this is playing, playing on... with the idea that uh that the multiverse has this kind of quantum nature where things flicker in and out of existence. A right. whole universe can be created and then destroyed just by the um, spinning of the, uh, of the particles that, that this, uh, that this quantum computer uses. And so you, you see this, if you go to the next page of this mosaic kind of like tendril right. and like each one of those little dots is supposed to represent some portion of the scale, right? Right. And yeah, I, it's and then the there's this image of all these Earths between the talons of the Fu Manchu character. Mm -hmm. And then we learn that that the entire structure of the room they're in is the computer. A computer created in 1945, but. <laughs> Well, computers, you know, then were the entire rooms. That's how it right. is now. One right. of those quantum computers would just be, you know, laptop. But if them. you if you had with a modern technology with quantum, a quantum computer as we now imagine it could be very tiny. So if you had a quantum computer that large, the computing capacity of it would be um, impressive. Which to, uh, still hard to convince me that it would be really a computer that creates and destroys universes in the hundreds and billions, <laughs> hundreds of thousands to billions at a time. But right. it's a really cool concept. It's, it's for people who are willing to sort of go onto this high level or highly abstract level of science fiction. And then from across this multiverse, another group of heroes whose universe is about to be destroyed and they know it somehow 
breaks through and, and comes face to face with our group of pulp heroes. And this is clearly a play in the Justice League. Right. You could point to the Superman. Any experienced, any experienced yeah. DC reader is going to figure out who these people are. Yeah. Um, they they look cool. I mean, uh, uh, the artist uh, John Cassidy went to enough trouble to sort of redesign each one. Maybe the least redesigned one is the Martian Manhunter. But we've got a blonde character with a shield, a woman who could be like Wonder Woman and a Superman-like character. I like his mm -hmm. outfit in particular. A Green Lantern-ish character, a, a Flash-like character, and a, uh, a sort of an Aquaman that looks a bit like the creature from the Lost Lagoon or something. Yeah. <laughs> creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't like that Batman, but... Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Double the Batman is kind of goofy looking, but in kind of a creepy way that I, actually I kind of like. Um, and so a battle ensues. This is all still in 1945. It's the story within the story. Mm -hmm. And they have this huge battle. And much to my surprise, the pulp heroes kind of win. I mean, everyone dies except Doc Savage. I mean, Doc Brass. But Doc right. Brass is able to take on the Superman character. Um so carnage ensues and then then we learn that doc brass has kept himself alive and just sitting here guarding the gateways from other universes in case some other intruder would come along since 1945 and he asks what year it is and he says he's guessing it's 1970 but i presume it's 1998 1999 um, right when the comic was published then they take him away on a stretcher to a special hospital, fly off the uh, fly him off in a helicopter, and Jakita and Elijah uh, are on the mountaintop, and they say, you know, he says it's a strange world, and Jakita says, let's keep it that way. Mm -hmm. But so what I don't get is he said he was guarding the gateway, and now he's okay leaving just because they've come and found him. As the, the I, I would have liked some confirmation that that they think they've closed off the gateway, or there's some reason why he would say, "Okay, I'm done. I don't need to guard this gateway anymore." But maybe we'll come back to that. I don't. I don't recall. Yeah, I mean, clearly there's an organization here, and they'll put something on it. As we entered this book, everything went very quickly. As we exit, everything goes very quickly, and right. As you're talking about it, I just very much got the sense that, like, you know, the or planetary organization would just post some people there, but they're not people of consequence. They're not right. our three. Right. There's all kinds of people other than the three who work for planetary, but they're just not of consequence, as you say. They're just like drones, drones working for the company. Mm -hmm. um, like you and I are at our jobs, or I was at my job. You are right. at your job. <laughs> At least I assume. At my company, there were there literally was the big three at my company, and the rest of us, from their point of view, were just in the backdrop. <laughs> and if they were going to have visitors to the company, they would tell us to dress nice that day so that we would look more professional. Mm -hmm. um, but other than that, there wasn't much interaction. <laughs> but anyway, um, you're right. Everything, everything is wrapped up. Every you know, on every step of the way, it's sort of everything's easy. And the, the thing that he spends the most time on is describing this whole quantum universe thing. 
and I think, you know, for me, I was charmed from the very first issue, the first time I read this, just because of the promise of so much layering of story. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of a story person, a, a myth, the mythos kind of stuff. So even though on a reread, it's like, wait a minute, all of this happens too quickly and people aren't asking enough questions. It definitely hooked me to want to read more. I think it's a solid first issue that shows some promise. And I think as you get into a little more, you see more of that promise. Right. I, I think it's a good first issue also in that sense that it's not setting up more than it can deliver or chew on. I've definitely seen first issues that are the most exciting and bombastic of at least the first chunk of the series. Right. And this isn't it's a lot of place setting it's a lot of introduction but it's also only an issue and in this issue there is also a little tight story also delivered i i do also believe as we go on things are a little better because you don't have to have that first half set up right you don't have to uh yeah. introduce everyone so yeah, yeah, because in his proposal, Warren Ellis says that he wants each issue to be a little standalone short story slash uh, song on an album kind of idea. Mm -hmm. Let me see if I can find where he says that. And give a quote. Planetary will be told in self-contained single issues. Think of each issue as a three-minute pop single. And elsewhere, he says, we treat each issue like a new single from a band and we play each story like a very short movie. So in this, he had to do kind of two short movies, the short movie of Elijah joining the gang, and then the short movie of his first sort of uh, archeology span story of the impossible. <laughs> and and I, I, when I started reading this, I got the very slim first trade, probably mm -hmm. in 2000 or 2001. And uh, so I immediately went on to the next issue. And when it kind of, delivered on the promise of the first issue i think maybe that's when it fully hooked me but there's something very very confident about the way uh, warren ellis writes mm -hmm. and that feeling that he doesn't have to put too much in seems to be part of that confidence and other people might not make it work but he has a for me he has the right kind of uh, alchemy to keep it simple but keep me hooked well, and with someone with an impressive bibliography, this is one of his standouts by any right. measure. It's one I've heard mentioned time and time again as one of those things you have to read. Though I think this is one that maybe uh, is given more trepidation, I guess. Like I've heard more people be afraid to approach this comic than a number of other comics because it's playing so much on... Uh, history and has so many quick references but i think right. what works well is for the most part i think if you don't understand the references the story works well enough integrating them that if Very you don't true. know you don't know and you can still enjoy the story but if you do know there's an extra little layer there for you right i mean we went through and explained who somewhat a little bit of who all the pulp characters were but it really doesn't matter at all in, I think on, understanding on a level of the story, it's just there were all these secret heroes that no one knew about. In particular, knowing that guy's supposed to be Tarzan gave 
a little more for me and i kind of understood yeah. a lot more because i wasn't picking that up right. and so that one definitely added more and maybe that's kind of one that didn't quite fully play through but i mean that's that's well, nitpicking i assume i mean i just don't when you first read this did you know who doc savage was the first time i read this no i yeah. did not at all and i'm curious even reading this now um with the this is supposed to be placed within the Wildstorm universe. Have you read much else in Wildstorm and particularly the authority? Well, so therein lies an interesting aspect of this. What one reason this is important to me is this was one of my comeback to comics experiences. I at, at the time that I read this, I I grabbed graphic novels from the library at random, mostly stuff I would already recognize. And when I went to the comic book shop, I would just look for whatever was new from Alan Moore. So I had kind of checked out from what was currently going on in comics for maybe five or six years. Okay. And uh, I ran into someone and I kind of played it coy. I said, well, I haven't read comics in a long time, which wasn't entirely true because of what I just said. Uh, what, what's good lately? And he told me planetary. And so I went and got the first trade and kind of fell in love with it. And uh, and maybe the second trade was out too, but then after that, there wasn't any more planetary available. And so I started following the name Warren Ellis and got to, you know, went backwards to the his authority and read some of his work in the ultimate universe and stuff. And that mm -hmm. started opening, like I wouldn't have read ultimates if it weren't for planetary in a weird, which is kind of weird, but... Um, because it's not by him. But so it kind of introduced me to what at the time was the modern superhero movement, which I think started with authority. But I, since I wasn't reading it in proper order, I don't know, or with Stormwatch. Um, right. And when I was reading the, uh, the intro here by Alan Moore, and I forget exactly what he was saying, um, but he was talking about change and how people say in comic books, people don't want change. And that was the received wisdom, but really things have to change. And there is, you know, change is unavoidable. And I was thinking that somehow I connected. And I think he mentions maybe in some vague passing the, how the, the comics industry almost died, right? Marvel went bankrupt, sales tanked out. Most people who were working in comics had to go find other jobs and out of the ashes of that, out of the ashes of that image period where the artist was supreme, what survived was these writer-driven comics. And, and some small group of writers, perhaps led by Warren Ellis, but drawing upon, looking back to what Alan Moore and some other people did, started reshaping the modern superhero comics into something new, I think. They 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 uh, they were able to kind of rewrite on top of the formula, and you can right. tell me I'm wrong. But anyway, that's my well, sense. But I wasn't there when it was happening. I I I hit planetary, and then started looking around for other stuff by Warren Ellis. So, I don't think you're necessarily wrong per se but i i would dial back on some of the importance you're placing on ellis here because what ellis is doing within this and 
is part of Wildstorm at the time, which he is one of the biggest components. Well, I'm not talking of. about planetary, but what he did before planetary, like with authority. Right. Well, and authority is spinning out of Stormwatch, which is running concurrent with um, Wildcats just within Wildstorm, much less image at large, mm -hmm. which is a major driving force in the industry at the time. Um, but also while Marvel's going bankrupt, there's a handful of books that are pushing things in different ways and DC as well, you know, which DC isn't owning this stuff yet, though they will. Right. Eventually. Um, when Jim Lee comes through. When Jim Lee sells Wildstorm to DC. Right. And uh, so there's there's a lot of interesting stuff going on at the time, plus um, small, smaller indie branches that are trying to pop up and take advantage of the big two in particular being softer than normal. And that doesn't pan out for pretty much any of them. So when I read this originally, I never thought of it as a Wildstorm book because I didn't know about Wildstorm until somewhat later and right. even then i just didn't make the connection i i think it remains and I'm, not, I'm not saying it isn't but i'm just saying i didn't see that right i i don't think it's until later that there's some lighter connections but the biggest one for me is with warren ellis and the character of the drummer mm -hmm. is very similar to the character of the doctor or the shaman authority right so, and I associate those characters with Warren Ellis because I haven't mm -hmm. read the earlier versions before Warren Ellis. The reference to the person born on the first year of the first day of the century. Also that similar. Character, what's her name? Jenny something? Jenny Sparks. Jenny Sparks. And somehow her importance or power derives from having been born to be the character representing the century. So they, but so I, I don't know. I have a sense of this group of writers coming up out of the ashes of the of the comic book industry that was kind of ruined <laughs> by both the collector's surge and the and the super overemphasis on art over any kind of story mm -hmm. and making story the most important the the whole thing treating the the history of superheroes in an archaeological way and creating a new layer you know so alan moore talks about how you can't not have change that they they no longer tried, you know, the generations after Stan Lee at Marvel were trying to just keep replicating what Stan Lee did. But, you know, they just had stopped trying to do that. And they came up with their own kind of new things and rejuvenated, at least for a while, I think the superhero genre. Because I found I found the whole ultimate line early on very exciting. Yeah. Um, and very refreshing. You know, and I was suddenly interested in the Fantastic Four and the Avengers and the X-Men again, which I hadn't been for a while. I think the initial blush of the Ultimate line was mostly pretty strong. I think the Ultimates doesn't hold up, but the the four, the X-Men and Spider-Man book all hold up until they reach about Ultimatum and then mm -hmm. it falls apart. Yeah. And this was in that era. And you have the rise of Bendis, you have the rise of ellis here i mean you have some works from alan moore coming out in different places uh you have neil gaiman no i guess he, he kind of came and went from the comic industry he occasionally point. dipped back in to make a star turn 
Right. Um, I think you had Mike Carey maybe as part of this generation too. In or around sure. here, yeah. I mean, I forget if this is about when he's on Wildcats doing his. Oh, I see. I didn't even know he was on there. Wildcats, but I knew he was doing oh, yeah. exciting things on X Men. I, I don't know if this is a proper characterization, but they took a lot of uh, what, in my mind, was kind of a vertigo, vertigo approach to writing and applied it more mm -hmm. to superheroes. And so it just gave it all a much more adult feeling, not not in the because we're being ultra violent or showing more boobs, but <laughs> in taking a more sophisticated view of what a world with superheroes is like. And Warren Ellis in particular, you know, really emphasizing the science fiction side of it, right? There were a lot of interesting things in authority that had kind of a science fiction feel. The whole, or I don't know if he came up with them, but I'm used to them from, because I read his authority with the, the bleed, you know, that was sort of between realities and that kind of thing that they had their um, headquarters in. The authority was his thing, at least for a while, and he architected it from mm -hmm. Stormwatch. And then eventually it went through some creators and pretty famously, um, I think it was. Uh, well, Mark Millar worked on the authority. Yeah. And, um, and then Ed Brubaker, because I remember you talking about his run on it. Yeah, and that was after. But they, I mean, in particular, Miller. Squadron Supreme with Ed Brubaker. But... Yeah. Miller and the Oatmeal Man, uh, quietly, uh -huh. were yes. on the authority and then got pulled into X-Men. So their run just didn't finish. I didn't realize it didn't finish. I actually, I bought the absolute editions of the authority, mm -hmm. which have the Warren Ellis stuff that I've already read and have the Miller quietly stuff that I haven't read. But when I bought it, I was very disappointed to find that it had a glued binding. So I, I haven't read it yet. Oh, okay. When I buy a hardback and I find uh, an expensive hardback and I find it has a glued binding, I get, I get very pissed off and I put it on my shelf I do have I to say that um, another big deal for me on this, because at the time I first encountered it, I guess I hadn't encountered the Brian Hitch work or the <laughs> Quietly work, was the the way that uh, Cassidy illustrates here. Mm -hmm. He takes a lot of the good stuff of the old comic book style, but also amps it up with a more... I don't, I don't know how to put my finger on it. It's not just illustrative, but um, I don't know. There's a boldness to the image. And I think this is quietly does similar things, but I think Cassidy does it very well. Uh, we're looking right now at, at the first image of Doc Brass. And uh, I don't know. There's just something really cool about the way he frames and arranges his characters and his panels. There's a lot of interesting detail for like texture and contrast. Right. And yeah, I mean, it's John Cassidy, but I mean, to my understanding, this is the work that kind of put him on the map for everything else. That's what I thought too. I looked him up and said that it said that he was already a fan favorite for work he'd done on the X-Men, which I'm not aware of. Um, I know he did work on the X-Men later with Joss right. Whedon, but it said before this, he also had gotten a rep from some kind of X-Men. Of course, my source could be wrong. It was, I was just looking around on the internet trying to yeah. figure out, you know, the ordering of Cassidy's career. But certainly the reason I knew of him and what the reason why I picked up Josh Whedon's X-Men was because Cassidy was on it. 
because I already loved Cassidy's work from here. Yeah, I. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather so, read this than that run again. So, I yeah. feel like that school of artists who came up through the Warren Ellis and other projects of the time also added something special and new. I mean, they always talk with um, Brian Hitch about the cinematicness, but just an extra sense of dra drama to each scene with, because a little, maybe a little extra thought was put into it. I mean, a lot of what he's doing here would be what John Buscema did too, with the different angles and the, oh, you know, always mixing up your camera shots and stuff. But then even an extra layer of, of thought put over that to make each image extra striking. Yeah, I mean, this is some top tier comic creation. I mean, composition, detail, writing, trust in your partner to go through, yeah. especially on the first issue. A lot going on here. And I'd be kind of curious to peek the script because I know Ellis isn't necessarily like Alan Moore to the level right. of scripting. But I don't think anyone is. But yeah, I know what you mean. He's yeah. he's more minimal. Um, well, I don't know. Is he minimal or is he sane? more minimal compared to Alan Moore, who's um, <laughs> who's writing a novel per page? Right. Who's writing pages and pages for each page? Somewhere near the back of this digital trade is the script. One of the I mean, pages. I'm looking at it, seeing the scope, and I mean, by the way, he's laying out the dialogue and all that. That's pretty minimal. I mean, you're setting up the scene and you're right putting out the dialogue and now on certain pages like page 14 where we first see the um the the round table of all the pulp characters he does a description of each character i'd read you the one of the one that looks like the spirit and we saw mm -hmm. that cassidy did not put in all those details mm -hmm. um, but we see things like um well, some he says a lot about, some he doesn't. Like the spider is the millionaire, like the shadow, only without supernatural powers and far, far crazier. A genius, but possessed by the need to save the world. Batman with guns and no mood stabilizers. <laughs> Long leather coat, slouched hat, guns visible. A spider designed down one breast of his long coat in gray against the black. So some of those details were are not even useful visually because he's uh you know this whole stuff about him being like batman but without the drugs controlling his moods or something implying that batman uses drugs to control his moods but um batman with guns and no mood stabilizers so anyway he's just sort of throwing out some clues which i don't know if we ever come back to the spider at all i don't recall um, so it may be more information than than was needed but then in the illustrations of the spider he has like a a metal mask or metal parts of his face are metal um, which is not mentioned here in this description right and i mean i think some of it's left up but i mean from that i get you know a grimace uh you know a, a mood disposition yeah. away from the other so it is an interesting way to go about it um, yeah, but it, it sort of seems to me that uh, the artist throws in ideas um, about about these characters visually that aren't necessarily yeah. in the script. Well, I mean, in the script isn't so detailed that you wouldn't. I mean, I, and some of that I think is healthy to leave certain details or ideas up to the artist and let them tell some of the story too. So. It's interesting, but it is an interesting blend, and that is 
odd. The um the opening he says American desert morning brilliant sunlight on the sand eye burning blue and yellow blaze of silver chromed frontage of a fifties diner out here in the middle of nowhere you know inside to find alone in the place aside from the miserable waitress behind the long plain counter a man at a table nursing a coffee miserable so there's a lot of detail there but it leaves a lot of room and if you look. I mean, I'd have to flip a lot of pages here digitally. But if you look at the beginning, Cassidy made a lot of choices on that. You know, like the diner, the way he did the diner is a whole interesting design. It almost looks like a piece of uh, a, kitchen, a kitchen stove or something, a, a, a toaster oven or a microwave or something. Mm -hmm. He's a fairly minimal scripter, but I think he includes enough information to give the mood of things for the... Uh, for the artist i've seen less uh-huh and maybe you've looked at more scripts than me I, i've looked at some and it's interesting to see certain writers especially certain writers with certain pedigrees and how they go about things mm -hmm. um like i know for instance straczynski definitely puts more down right um alan moore is an outlier so i almost don't want to even reference him anymore um and then I've seen certain Bendis scripts that are almost less than this. <laughs> that's interesting. But some Bendis scripts are so more. much in the dialogue. Well, but that's the thing is he's doing so much on dialogue. So when you actually, like, once you get past the dialogue, um, the page description is, I mean, I guess it's about that. But right. I haven't seen Bendis ever do anything like that round table kind of a deal not that i've right. read every one of his scripts by any imagination well i've heard say that you know as they're working with an artist they and they see what the artist does they start writing their scripts in different ways mm -hmm. so this is the first script and that's all they include at the back of the book but who knows what his 10th script to uh, john cassidy might have been they might have shifted in their working he might have even included less detail or more detail depending on whether he liked what Cassidy did with his scripts. That's true. I would guess. Like, I know you see Scott Snyder pair way down, especially when you look through those Batman scripts with Capullo, like to the point uh, where there's like, you can get through a handful of pages on one written page, right. especially if it's a fight scene. Wow. Yeah. Well, anyway, I am, I'm really looking forward to us reading and discussing the next issue. Yeah, I think this will be a little more fun as we go, and this issue is a lot more uh, table setting. So. It is, but it still was fun. Um, oh, yeah. Definitely, you know, I've now reread this first issue many, many times, because I mm. several times thought I would reread the whole series, but then I got distracted. So I'm hoping doing this uh, podcast will get me to the end. We'll get there. Um, but each time I read this intro, uh, I, well, I mean, I find little flaws, but I, I really uh, enjoy it. It's darn good. I mean, is it beyond reproach? I don't think so. But I, I think it's quality worth reading. There's a lot here going on. Right. There's a lot more to consider than to quibble. Yeah, and I, I'm, I don't know, but I, I could easily imagine this eventually just being kind of looked at as a comic of its era. You know what I'm saying? Um, re representative yeah. of a certain period in time of, of the way comics were done. I definitely could see that, though. I think Planetary is a little interesting to try to put to a time because it's pulling 
from so much. But we'll get more to that as we continue. Through. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know if any characters will die and come back to life here, but we will be back soon, perhaps in a week or two. There we go.